Good morning, Four Corners. It's a blessing to be with God's people. I pray that that is your disposition as you've come here this morning. And the truth is we come with all kinds of things in our minds. We come with worries and uh, fears and discomforts, frustrations. If we could peer into the minds of everyone here, we'd see all sorts of stuff. Uh, But what we know is that the Lord does do that. He peers into each of our hearts And he has ordained it to be the case that he would use his word to minister to all of us and each of us. I think that's the miraculous thing about the way God uses preaching, the way God uses his word, is that he takes the same scripture and uses it in a myriad of ways in the hearts of his people. And so we submit ourselves humbly to the Lord this morning. We cast our cares upon him knowing that he cares for us, and knowing that he uses his word, he uses time together in corporate worship to minister to our needs. And so my prayer is for us that we'll set aside those things that we're worrying about or thinking about, uh, frustrations, fears, whatever it is, and that we will put those before the Lord and then plug in here with God's word. And our passage for today is Exodus 34, Verses 29 to 35. So if you'll go ahead and go there with me in your Bibles. Exodus 34, 29 to 35. As most of you know, as a church, we are working our way through the book of Exodus. This is in the Old Testament. It's the second book of the Bible. Uh, and we are in the final chapters of that series. And as I've said before, trying to prepare everyone, we're, we're closer to the end than you may even think. Because what we'll find when we get to chapter 36 is that really 36 to 39 uh, is a repetition of what we've already seen with the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So God comes to Moses. Uh, he he Moses ascends to God and, and God comes down to Moses on the mountain and he gives him the instructions for the tabernacle. And those instructions are very detailed. We went through, we looked at curtains and stones and uh, beams and all the rest as we went through uh, those passages and looking at the instructions for the tabernacle. What we're going to find in chapters 36 to 39 is that those instructions are going to be applied in the actual building of the tabernacle. And there will be some things to observe, some differences, uh, especially in the order and other things, but largely that material will be a repeat, and so we'll take on larger chunks when we get to that point. So we really are in the, the final chapters, we're on the final stretch. And last week, we saw the renewal of the covenant. This is a real high point in the book, following after a low point In chapter 32, the people have broken their covenant with Yahweh by replacing him with a golden calf. Absolutely unthinkable. Given all the glory that they've seen, all of God's might and power, but not just sheer power, not just his miraculous workings, but also his workings on their behalf. They haven't just seen God do amazing things. They have seen God do amazing things in his love for them. So they have betrayed their loving king. They have built a golden calf, a metal image 
And they have replaced Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the mighty God who conquered the Egyptians. They have replaced him with this idol. But, as we've read, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So all of that, yes, betrayal, rebellion, infidelity, adultery even. And yet God has shown great mercy. And by the way, that is the story of every Christian. Uh, That is the story of every believer in Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you want to understand what is at the core of a Christian, a Christian is one who has been mercied. A Christian is one who's been graced by God. Lost in sin, dead in sin, enslaved by sin, in darkness, as Paul says in Ephesians, darkness itself, a son of Satan. These are just some of the ways that in the New Testament, throughout the Bible, that unbelievers are described, but God. God comes into the life of such a person and radically saves that person, transfers the righteousness of Jesus to the account of that person, takes that person's sin and puts it on Jesus at the cross, gives that person a new heart, And by his grace, the person is then able to live in light of those gospel truths by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what a Christian is. It's a mercied person. It is a graced person. Despite all of this sin, on top of all that we've done, God has done this. And so let me just invite you, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, know this about the Lord, that Christianity is not a system of things that you must do. There is certainly uh, the significance of ethics in Christianity and morality. Is, are, these are significant ideas within Christianity. But what we need to understand is that at the heart of all of it is to be a person who is greatly in need of God's forgiving Grace, And so I pray that everyone here has embraced that, has been renewed by God's grace. But if not, let me just invite you this morning as you listen, call out to Christ. Put your faith in what he did to save sinners. And this mercy that we read about, this grace that we read about in Exodus 34, 6-7, that is what we have been witnessing repeatedly as we've moved through chapters 32 to 34. These three chapters really do constitute a unit. And what we've seen as we've moved through these chapters repeatedly is the mercy and grace of God. Let me just give you a few docking points as we go through these three chapters. So we saw this in 32 verse 14. After the golden calf, God is going to destroy the Israelites. Of course, we know that's not what he intends to do. He intends to use Moses as an intercessor. Moses intercedes for Israel. And we read this about the Lord in 32, 14. And the Lord relented 
from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Grace, mercy applied. Chapter 33, verse 14 and 17. After Moses asked for God himself to go with the people, God has said he will not go with the people. He's going to send a created being. He's going to send an angel instead of going with the people himself as he has done up to that point. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, grace, mercy. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name, God's grace to his people. And then in chapter 34, verse 10, which we looked at last week in the renewal of the covenant, in despite all that Israel has done, We read this in 34.10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. What incredible mercy the Lord has shown his people even though they have replaced him with an idol. Then God gives a sampling, as we read last week, of the covenant stipulations. And these covenant stipulations, which God puts back onto his people, can be summarized with two ideas. And here they are. These were our points from last week, two of our points. Stay away from idolatry and come near to me regularly and rightly. God tells his people that they are to stay away from something And they are to move towards something, to come near regularly and rightly. And let me say this to us, covenant belonging is stated negatively and positively. As we live out our covenant relationship with the Lord, as we live out in our walk with God, there are things that we must not do and there are things that we must do. And, you know, we often hear uh, lists of do's and don'ts and so forth. And typically, uh, it's important to to point that out as a contrast uh, to uh, the way we are to understand the gospel of grace, that the gospel of grace is the focus. Everything I just said about God's mercy, it's not about uh, following a moral code. And yet, when God saves us, he saves us into a covenant in which there are most certainly do's and don'ts. There are things as people in the Lord, united to the Lord, as we saw witness there with Charles' baptism, in union with Jesus, there are things that we must not do and things that we must do. Things that we are called away from and things that we are called to. And as I said last week, it is often the case that the things that we are not to do become much more prevalent as we fail to do the things that we are to do. In other words, those things which God has set up for us in the Christian life, the means of grace, the means by which he sustains us and grows us and preserves us, the means by which God does all of these things in our lives are the protective against the sins of the flesh, the temptations that come our way, the desires of our hearts that are part of the old man, the old self that drive us into iniquity. 
We realize that as we live out our walk with the Lord, as we focus our attention on the Lord, as our time and our energy is so devoted to the praises of God and to his work in the lives of people, that we really just have no time for these evil deeds. So, Moses has been on the mountain with God. He's heard and seen of this glory, this grace. He's been on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights as God is renewing the covenant with Israel. But now, as we come to the final verses of chapter 34, Moses returns. Moses comes down from the mountain. And it is a surprising and even a frightening return. As he comes from the mountain and descends to the people, it is a surprising and frightening return. And so the title for the sermon this morning is The Radiant Return. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. We'll read, we will read um, chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. This is the word of God. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. You can go ahead and be seated. Maybe a strange passage, maybe one you've never read before, maybe one you're, you're quite familiar with. It's, a, it's an awesome passage, and it is at the same time an odd passage as we read it. But as we'll see this morning, it is also a pivotal passage as we come to the end of this section. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's grace to work in us. Let's ask that God would center us on his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ and that God would fuel within us and motivate within us those works that he calls us to. Those works, as Ephesians 2.10 says, that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those works that involve do's and don'ts for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that uh, as, as we reflect on the golden calf, it really is the story of every believer. As we see uh, our old Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 life, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins, in which we once walked according 
to the course of this world according to Satan's way. Lord, we recognize that that was the life that we lived prior to your gracious salvation of us, Lord, before you credited Christ to our account, you credited his perfect life to our very imperfect account, and you renewed our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace in our lives, and we're here this morning to celebrate that, to praise you, because we are undeserving people. We have absolutely no reason, no merit to be here this morning and to be praising you with new hearts. We don't deserve to know you, God. We don't deserve to behold your glory. We don't deserve to have our sins forgiven, to have the hope of eternal life, to know that we will reign with Christ forever. Lord, we deserve your wrath. We deserve hell. We deserve an avalanche of judgment. Because we have rebelled against you. We have worshipped the golden calf. We have worshipped ourselves. We have exchanged the creator for the creature. We have bowed down to created things as though they were gods. Father, we thank you that you have saved us, Lord. And, and some this morning, perhaps here, who are unsaved, who Uh, have not bowed to Christ, who have not put their confidence in his work on the cross when he said, it is finished. Lord, I pray that you would be merciful to them this morning, that you would magnify the glory of your grace in saving them for the sake of your name. God, we thank you that in the ages to come, we will celebrate and praise your mercy, both Jew and Gentile, in eternity. God, we pray that you would be merciful to us this morning as we come under your word, that you would convict us of sin and purge from our lives those evil deeds and those evil desires. God, we pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that you would encourage us in our walk with you, comfort us where we are downcast, where our knees are weak, where we are feeble. Father, strengthen us by the Spirit, in our great hope, who is Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. So we can divide this little passage into two parts, and you'll see that up on the screen this morning. These are our two points, if you wish to write these down. So first we have the frightening face, verses 29 to 33. And then second we have the new normal, verses 34 to to 35. So let's look first at the frightening face, verses 29 to 33. I'm going to read those verses again. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, The skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. 
So Moses has been with God. He has been with God on top of the mountain. And here he comes down. He descends to the people. As we've seen again and again, Moses is the covenant mediator. And maybe as you hear that, you think, oh, that's that Bible jargon again. This is so important. And I'm grateful that I've had kids come up to me after the service and ask me about covenant and mediator. Just put those two uh, words together because it's an important way we understand the role of Jesus Christ. It's an important way that we understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have to get these ideas. It's important for us as we try to put our Bibles together and as we understand who it is that Jesus is to us. Moses is here the mediator of the old covenant. Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. And as the covenant mediator, he moves between the people and God. And so that's why we've seen him just wearing his legs out up and down this mountain. Coming down, he's with the people. He goes up, he spends time with God. We've read of this tent of meeting where he he comes into the camp, he's with the people. He goes out of the camp, he meets with God. He is the covenant mediator. God has called him up the mountain to bring new tablets of stone. We read that at the beginning of chapter 34. And God was going to write upon these tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. And I should say he's going to rewrite. Remember that the first tablets were broken. The covenant had been broken by the people, and as a symbol of that, when Moses returned to the people, he broke those tablets. But now Moses has brought new tablets up to God at God's command, and God has written, he has rewritten the Ten Commandments on those tablets. One tablet symbolizing the the copy for Israel, being the copy for Israel, and one the copy for the Lord. They have entered into a binding agreement based on promise, a covenant. God has written these laws on the stones. Moses has recorded God's words, and now Moses goes back down to the people. And this time, it is not Moses who is disturbed by what he sees. Remember, the last time Moses came down the mountain was when he saw the people reveling in their idolatry. He came down the mountain and he saw the people as they had been worshiping the golden calf. The last time Moses was disturbed, this time it is the people. They are disturbed because Moses' face is shining. And Moses doesn't even know it. He's been in the presence of God and, and his face is glowing, it's shining, and he has no idea. Verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. His face is shining, it is glowing, it is a radiant face. And as the Hebrew verb here suggests, it is projecting 
rays of light. The verb itself has confused commentators because it literally gives the idea of projecting a horn. And so you get medieval art, which shows Moses with horns, which is really a misunderstanding of what's going on here. Moses doesn't grow horns and he comes down, you know, looking like a bull. And some have said, well, yes, maybe that's what's going on as a, as a reference back to the golden bull. And that's just really unlikely. The idea here is he is projecting, as it were, these rays, these horn-looking beams of light. He's glowing. He's shining forth. But why? Why is Moses' face shining? The end of verse 29 puts it simply, because he had been talking with God. Well, enough said, right? His face is shining. He's been talking with God. But We need to recognize that this is a little strange. This is a little strange to the reader. It's strange to all of us because we have not seen this before, right? This is something new. Hasn't Moses already talked with God many times? We've had this sort of thing. God and Moses, remember, covenant mediator. He's been mediating a lot. He's been interceding a lot. He's been conversing with God a lot. Whether it is on the mountain or in the tent of meeting. So why now? Why now do we have all this shining? Why now is Moses' face projecting, displaying this glory? Why is his face shining now and not before. Well, I think there are at least four reasons. So I want to I go through those quickly. I want you to see each of these. And I think we, there, there's, there's much about this that we're simply not told. But I think there are at least four things that we can, we can hang our hat on as we think about why it is that Moses' face is shining here and not before. So here they are. First, it marks the glory that Moses has just seen. Or even more importantly, heard. It marks the glory that has entered his face from two directions. In the front and on the side. He asked to be shown God's glory. Remember, he asked for God's presence. And God said that he would give his presence. And then very abruptly, he says, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. And so the Lord hears Moses' request, and he does what Moses has asked. He passes before him, and Moses sees his back as he has passed before him, and God proclaims his name. But then when we read the name, what are we seeing there? We see God's gracious character on display. God passes before Moses. His goodness passes before Moses. Moses sees the Lord's back and he hears of God's incredibly gracious character. God's name. The shining face is like an imprint of that glorious encounter. And as such... It is a pointer to God's name. Let me say it this way. It is a pointer to his forgiving grace. Remember, this is in light of the golden calf. Other previous times, there hasn't been such an expression of God's grace 
What an incredible expression of God's grace that even after the golden calf, he would do this. So it is important that we have at this juncture, this great display of God's name. Moses' face is a shining display of divine grace at this point in Israel's story. Second, it reassures the people that God has relented from taking away his presence. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 33, that God said to the people that he was not going to go with them. He was going to send an angel. He was not going to go with them himself. And remember the response of the people. They mourn. The people mourn at this news that the Lord is not going to go with them. Well, now they see Moses holding new tablets with the evidence of God's presence on his very face. In other words, here we have great reassurance to the people that God is in fact with them and will be with them, evidenced by this beaming face of Moses. So it is a reassurance of grace. It is a reassurance of God's presence. Thirdly, It validates Moses as the covenant mediator. Remember with the golden calf incident at the very beginning, the people are grumbling against Moses. He's still up there. Where is this guy? Where is this fellow Moses? And you remember at the very beginning, from the very beginning when Moses entered Egypt, the people gave Moses a very difficult time as he was coming to give God's message. And it brought greater hardships on the people initially, and they hated Moses for it. And then when they're going through the wilderness and they don't have enough food, when the Egyptians come to attack them before God parts the sea, and then when they don't have enough food and they don't have enough water, Moses, 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 this guy, Moses. But here we see Moses coming down from the mountain to the people, as the covenant mediator, validated by the Lord. One commentator, Douglas Stewart, calls this an unmistakable credential. Moses doesn't have to pull out something. Hey, look, uh, here's a note from the Lord that I am not so uh, terrible. I'm going to lead you, and and here's, I'm your covenant mediator. No, God has put it on his face. God has blasted Moses' face with his favor. For all the people to see. And it is interesting here that we find another pointer to the Lord Jesus Christ. The true covenant mediator as we come to a passage like the transfiguration in Matthew 17 verse 2. It says of Jesus on the mount of transfiguration that he was transfigured before them. Some of his disciples are there and Peter writes about this later. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. What an incredible thing that those apostles witnessed when they saw the glory of Jesus. His face is shining like the sun. I take our kids to school into Peachtree City on 
early on Tuesday and Wednesday morning. And the sun at different times is rising and sometimes it is, is blasting us so badly that we're trying so hard uh, to be able to see. You can't see the traffic lights and all of that. You just, you can't, we, we talked recently about how we ought not to look at the sun ever because of what it does to our eyes. Here we see Jesus' face shining like the sun, pointing back to Moses as the covenant mediator and showing that Jesus is the true mediator, the ultimate mediator. He's the prophet who would come in Deuteronomy 18, who would be like Moses and to whom the people must listen. Fourthly, and finally, this shining face pushes the people away from their previous idolatry. You know, it really is amazing how much the Lord meets his people where they are. Uh, we've seen that in our lives. He, he condescends to us. He meets us in the muck of our lives. The grace of God in, in stooping down to us to pick us up out of the mud. How many times has God picked you up out of a puddle? How many times has God scooped down, scooped you up and washed off your face, cleaned you up? This is the fatherly love of our God. And here we see that God is meeting the people where they are in their weakness and he has given this amazing display and it glorifies God and it leaves them in awe of him alone so that they would Leave behind the practices of the golden calf. In place of that, they have this beaming golden face of the one who has been in the presence of the Lord. And all of that, this shining face, brings us to the people's response. They are afraid. Naturally, we would say, right, they, they are afraid. Verse 30, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses... And behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. This is simply too much for the people to take in. They know they've sinned. And remember, this is important. The last message they heard from the Lord was back in chapter 33, verse 5. And what did God say to them? You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. You're a stiff-necked people that I would consume if I stay with you. What will God do to them? Maybe this shining face of Moses is a sign of destruction. Maybe this is the moment when God is going to consume them. God said he would determine what he would do with them. Maybe this is the moment where Moses begins to blast them from his eyeballs. Maybe God has empowered Moses to execute judgment on the people. And here he is coming down the mountain with this glowing face. It is natural when we see the people afraid. Maybe it reminds them of the way they felt after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Remember, God gives the Ten Commandments audibly to the people from the top of Mount Sinai. They can look up, they can see the fire, they can hear the thunder. And this is what we read after the commandments are given. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, 
The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. They told Moses, listen, you go talk to God. We're going to stay over here. You just come and tell us what he says. They're that terrified. They are trembling and standing far off. This is similar to what we find here. But this is no time for fear. This is not a time to fear, but to take heart, to rejoice in God's mercy and the renewing of the covenant. And so Moses reassuringly brings them near and gives them God's message. And that's what we read in verses 31 to 32, if you'll look with me there. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near. And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. So Moses brings the people near. And you can see the reassurance here. He talks with them. He communicates with them. And then after communicating with them, showing that he's not going to blast them, showing them that it is Moses himself, he gives them the commands of the Lord. And then after speaking to them with this glorious face, we read in verse 33 that he puts on a veil. He puts a veil over his face. He covers the glory. Now, we're going to talk more about this veil in a moment under our second point. But I want to pause here and ask a very simple question. As we think about this image of Moses' shining face. And I just want to ask you, what about your face? When people interact with you, wherever it is, at work, strangers, people at the gas station, people at the restaurant, the male person, whoever it is, when people interact with you, do they see the imprint of God's glory. That's what we are meant to understand here about this face of Moses. And we'll get there at the end of the sermon of our second point. But we are meant to think about this imprint of God's glory on Moses' face. Is it clear to other people that you have been with the Lord? Moses had been with the Lord. He had seen the Lord's glory. And that was written all over his face. So too, for all of us, as we interact with people in our world, everywhere we go, what is written on our face? Is it the name of Yahweh? Is it this God who reveals himself as perfectly merciful and perfectly just? Is it this God who has given us such grace and calls us to extend that same grace to others? Is it this God who is pure holiness, who calls us not to worship the idols of this world, but to worship him alone? What do people see on our face? How dull is that glow. Secondly, 
we see the new normal. We get the frightening face, verses 29 to 33, and now we come to the new normal, verses 34 to 35. So let's read those two verses as we finish up. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the last passage before we get into the preparations for the building of the tabernacle, which will start with the Sabbath because the people are not going to be building the tabernacle on the Sabbath, and it immediately goes into the contribution, immediately goes into the work, the skilled workers whom God's Spirit has has empowered, and then we'll get the, the building of the tabernacle. That's what's ahead in chapter 35, 36, all the way up through 39, and then the Lord will come and dwell in that tabernacle in chapter 40 as we see over there. So this is the last that we get of this section from 32 to 34. And here we see that this veil gets special attention. The purpose of these verses is to explain that there is a new status quo for the Israelites. There is a new normal. So what is the new normal? Well, Moses' shining face is now going to be a part of Israel's experience. This was not a part of Israel's experience before, but it is now. Post-golden calf, post-rewriting of the Ten Commandments, rewriting on the stone tablets, post-renewing of the covenant, post the glory of the Lord passing before Moses and entering into his ears, post all of that, the new normal, is Moses' shining face. Since we don't get more references to this after Exodus 34, some have suggested that this continued only until until the tabernacle was constructed. This is is an odd passage for us in a number of ways, but one of the ways that it is strange is is that it doesn't keep coming up. We're told this, and then uh, the the rest of the Old Testament just leaves it. it. It doesn't come back up. So what's going on? Does Moses' face continue to glow? Well, some have suggested that this continues only until the building of the tabernacle. And they draw a line between this veil and the veil that separated the holy of holies. And perhaps this was the case. I mean, we're really not told much more about this. We're not told anything else about this throughout those first five books of Moses. But we are not told directly that this has anything to do with that veil or with the Holy of Holies. Also, it's important to note that this veil and the veil in the tabernacle are two different unrelated Hebrew words. These these aren't the same words. They're not related words. They're different words. Now, they're both translated in English historically as veil, but they are different. So whatever we conclude, we should be cautious about drawing any connection between these two veils. Perhaps it is the case that this continues only until the tabernacle, but maybe not. So what is this new normal? Well, it follows the pattern that we just read. Moses spends time with God with an unveiled face. His face shines. He conveys God's message to the people with a shining face. Face, 
And then he puts on the veil until the next time he meets with the Lord, probably in the tent of meeting. So why the veil? Why does Moses put on this veil? And once again, this passage is strange for a number of reasons. First, we're wondering why Moses' face is shining. But then we ask the question, why does he have to put on a veil? And I think that we could say that the answer to this question comes from two angles. First, and very simply, the veil is an act of compassion for the people. They are frightened by Moses' face, and this fear probably persisted even after Moses brought them near. This is just too much for them to take in. It is important that they see the glory, and that is the reason why Moses leaves the veil off after the Lord appears to him, and as he brings the commands of the Lord to the people, it is important that they see the glory, but it is too much for them to handle on an ongoing basis. And this seems to be the assumed reason here in Exodus 34, although it is not stated directly. So I think we can assume that that's part of the reason for the veil here in this narrative as it unfolds is that it is an act of compassion for the people as they are afraid. Second, Paul unpacks the meaning of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And that's what Dennis read to us earlier. And that is a very robust and deep passage. So we're not going to go now and preach 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But I do want to help you understand how Moses, uh, on a basic level, is taking this passage in. As he deals with Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35 there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul gives a second reason for the veil. He uses it to explain the glory of the new covenant. If the old covenant of the letter of the law came with this level of glory, here's Moses with his shining face. If the old covenant came with that glory, how much more the new covenant by the Spirit? If the old covenant with the letter of the law came with that much glory so that the people shrank back from this glory shining off of Moses' face. How much more glory does the new covenant in Christ by the Spirit applied to the heart, how much more glory does that have? This old covenant, he says, was fading away or coming to an end, but the new covenant is enduring. It lasts forever. And in verse 13, Paul gives the reason for the veil in Exodus 34. He says this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13, Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, there's a lot of debate over what exactly that Paul means by this, but many have interpreted this to mean that the reason Moses veiled his face is because he did not want the people to see the glory fade. He did not want the people to see the glory that they were seeing right after he came out from God's presence and gave commands to them. He did not want them to see the glory fade, but that it was by nature a fading glory. And it was a glory that the people were unable to truly see because of their hardness of heart. The old covenant came with this veil. As Paul says, but the new covenant results in unveiled faces. So listen to what he says 
in verses 15 to 16 of 2 Corinthians 3. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But here's the hope. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And here is what Paul is saying. And this is where we'll end today. When a person believes in Jesus, when he or she turns to the Lord in repentance and faith, hears the gospel of Christ and turns to him, Away from sin, turns away from sin, repentance, to turn around towards God in faith. When this happens, the veil is removed and we become like Moses, greater than Moses, beholding God's glory. So what is the effect? What is the effect on us of this beholding God's glory in his son, in the Lord Jesus Christ? And we get that in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, you see how Paul is picking up on the the unveiling versus the veiling with respect to the glory. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now let me say this to us. There is no hope unless we behold the glory of the Lord. We have to behold the glory of Christ. And that's why you've heard me say before, if you're coming to church and you're going through the motions of the Christian life, but you really have no concept in your mind, no desire for the glory of Christ. If when you think about heaven, you merely think about escaping hell, or you think about just all the benefits of being in a paradise-like state or a paradise-like place, if that's where your mind goes, and that's the only place your mind goes, It means that you have not come to behold the glory of Christ. For the Christian, we want Christ. For the Christian, we love Christ. For the Christian, we want to behold him in his glory. And that's why at the very beginning of the service, we read Jesus' prayer in John 17. He says, Father, I pray that they will be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. This is the end result. The end result of all of this life, the great prize is to see the glory of Christ. Do you want to see him? Do you care to see him? If not, truly, if not, repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin and trust in this merciful redeeming Savior who will then give us by His Spirit a beholding of His glory and a desire to behold His glory forever. That's what happens when we become Christians. But let me also say this to us. Beholding means also reflecting. Beholding is not where it ends. It ends with us Reflecting as we think about this life. 
So we are given a picture of the Christian life in Exodus chapter 34. As we go out into this world, we are like Moses coming down from the mountain. We are shining with the, with the glory of God found in the face of Jesus Christ. And we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We behold him, and as we behold him, we are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Let me just put it very simply. When people interact with us, they should see Jesus. They should see Jesus in us. Now, of course, they will see Jesus in us imperfectly, and they will always see Jesus in us imperfectly. Right up until the end of our lives, right up until our final day, we will never, and in fact, as we grow in our sanctification, and this is one of the reasons why as we grow in Christ, we become more humble. Pride is one of the greatest signs of spiritual immaturity because the more we grow in the Lord, the more we see our sin and his holiness. So that the most mature believers throughout history recognize how greatly sinful they truly are before the Lord. We will never reflect his glory perfectly. But we are called day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment in our marriages, with our kids, with our neighbors, our co-workers, with one another, in, uh, among God's people to reflect the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me say this this morning. As you think about your life, as you think about the struggles of the Christian life, let me just point you to one thing. God calls us to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to keep his son as our focus. So we oftentimes will do little things. We'll make little steps. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of check little boxes. God wants us to do whatever it takes, whatever we need to do. Maybe you need to quit a job. Maybe you need to radically change your schedule. Maybe you need to give up not one, but all of your hobbies. Maybe bedtime needs to get pushed back a little bit and your personal free time must shrink a little bit. Whatever it takes, God wants us to keep the glory of his son always before our face that we might reflect it for the sake of his name. Whatever it takes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how gracious you are to direct us to your son. Thank you, Father, that you have remade us in him, that you have poured out your spirit into our hearts, and that the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Father, thank you for the assurance that your spirit gives as, as we have been remade, Lord. We thank you that that he assures us and he grows us. And as we behold Christ, we become more and more like Christ. 
Father, we ask you for forgiveness for all the ways that we do not reflect King Jesus. And Lord, all the ways that we are slothful in our lives, that we are not fervent in zeal, as Paul says in Romans 12, but we are slothful in the way we relate to you. We settle. We settle for a little ounce of piety. We settle for a little bit of goodness. We settle for a a, a couple disciplines here and there. Lord, when you have laid claim to our entire life, all that we are, every breath under your lordship, everything we have is a gift from you to be used for you. Lord, would we not just give you part of ourselves? Would we be entirely devoted to this covenant mediator? This glorious Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for him. And we pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to us in continuing to conform us into his image. From one degree of glory to another, all the way up until our death. As we hope and trust, as you have promised, that one day we will be made perfectly like him. We praise you for that. And we look forward to that day as awaiting people. In Jesus' name, amen.